Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. We're starting chapter 14 in, in the gospel of John. And, uh, you know, it's hard for us in 2019 to sort of empty our thinking of the last 2,000 years of church history and to really immerse ourselves in what they were thinking and what they were going through in the first century. I know I've mentioned this, um, this podcast guy before. I'll mention him again. Aaron Budgen, he was a Jew, yeah, I guess still is ethnically a Jew, but he was studying and preparing to become a rabbi. And in that journey, um, he found the Lord and the Lord found him. And he declared Jesus as the Messiah. He was cut away, cut off from all his family and the, the friends and the entire Jewish community um, in that uh, rabbinical you know, order. And um, he has this podcast where he's able to help, at least helps me, really um, immerse myself in that first century Pharisaical Judaism, that context of what we read in the New Testament. Because when we read it, let's just be honest, we think of 2019. We, we put our thoughts, our culture, our thinking into the scene. But that's just not the way it was then. And so when we, and as we walk through these things, thinking the way they thought and how revolutionary what Jesus was actually saying, I think it helps, at least it helps me, uh, not just appreciate what Jesus has done in, in, you know, in, in time and space, what he's about to do, but it, but it helps me um, see, see the, the, the global impact of what Jesus and his work, in fact, did and the eternal impact. And so we're going to see that a little bit more. Hopefully we've highlighted that as we've gone through this letter, uh, this, this gospel of John. Um, but we're going to see that a little bit more today. The big thing before we jump into chapter 14 is to just remember that in chapter 12, Jesus began what we call the Last Supper. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 12, Mary washes his feet. They have the triumphal entry. And at the, by the end of chapter 12, he's with his disciples. They're having the, the Last Supper that we call it, where Judas, he gives Judas the wafer thing and they, he goes to betray him. It actually happens in chapter 13. But they're, they're in the night of his arrest. This isn't like weeks before his arrest or even days before his arrest. We're talking like six hours-ish before his death, maybe 12, six to 12 hours before his death. So we're at the end. He washes his disciples' feet. Why? We talked about that a couple weeks ago to symbolize the end of a journey. You wash your clothes at the end of the day. You wash your, your, they wash their feet at the end of a journey, not in the middle of it, but at the end to symbolize the end of this journey 
of sin and death, the end of this journey of Jesus and his ministry, the end of the old covenant because a brand new covenant was coming to the point where Jesus said, if you don't, Peter, wash your feet to show the end of this, this journey, then you have no part of me. Because the new covenant isn't the old covenant made a little bit better or the old covenant carried over. The new covenant and the old covenant are as opposite as oil and water, as new wineskin and old wine, uh, uh, as a new shirt and an old shirt. They're opposite. They, they do not mix. And so he says in chapter 12, he tells them that the command that the Father gives me, I'm giving you, and here it is, it's that you believe. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the system of the Old, uh, the Mosaic Law was performance-based acceptance. If you perform a certain way, you'll get rewarded that certain way. That was the Old Covenant system. And that's the system that is prevalent even in our thinking today in religion. But that's not the new. The new covenant is belief. You come by faith and are made new, not by actions, not by deeds, not by doing and the apostles, they struggled with this, just like we struggle with it. We shouldn't throw stones. I mean, it was some 20 years later after Jesus left to go back to heaven when they finally were decided in Acts chapter 15, you know, a Gentile doesn't have to be circumcised in order to become a Christian. They were struggling with this concept, just like we, we don't struggle necessarily with circumcision, but what must we do? We must do something. Some people say you have to be baptized in order to be a Christian. Some people say you have to give a certain amount of money in order to really be a Christian. And they're struggling with the same things that we still struggle with today. Of There has to be some sort of performance-based expectation that's met in order to really be a believer, a Christian. And so that comes out of their, their culture, their understanding that in order to really be close to God, it's all about your behavior and your performance. And Jesus is saying, that's the end of that journey. We're washing the feet of that. That's the end. And a whole new thing is coming, a new covenant that's based upon faith, upon believing. So in chapter 12, he lays that foundation. And I told you when we went through it, that foundation is critical for chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. Because if we don't see this commandment that Jesus starts giving in chapter 12 of believe faith, then we're going to misunderstand a lot of what he says in chapter 14, which we're getting into starting today. Then in chapter 13, he gives them another commandment. In chapter 13, he says, a new commandment I give you that you, do you remember? It starts with an L. Love. How? As I have loved you. So here's the big question. In order for these disciples for us in the new covenant in order for us to love as Christ, each other as Christ loves us what's the very first thing we must do really come to grips with what how much he loves me you see how can I even begin to project a love that I don't even really know that I haven't really wrestled with see our love typically naturally is is um, conditional you know, if, if you perform a certain way, I'm going to love you a little bit more. If you don't perform a certain way, I'm going to probably love you a little less. I'm going to be around you a little less. I'm going to extend myself to you a little less. I'm going to open up to you a little bit less. But that's not his love. And so if we don't understand that our, 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 our opportunity is to love as he's loved us, and we don't really wrestle with his love for us, then we're, we're clueless about what real community in the new covenant is all about. So he gives this commandment to believe. He gives this commandment to love as we have been loved by him, which really starts 
and ends, in essence, with really coming to terms with his love for us. What does Paul tell the Ephesians? He says, my prayer for you is that you get to know what? His love for you. Because that's what starts and changes everything. And so Jesus is getting more and more clear about his departure. About, he even starts talking more and more about his death, about, uh, you know, uh, strike this temple down and, you know, three days, I'll, you know, it, all this sort of vague, but he's getting clearer that he is going to die. He just sent Judas out saying, what you're going to do, do it quickly. They didn't understand, but he's saying more and more about his coming impending death to the point that the disciples, they're getting a little worried. They're getting a little, they're growing concerned. Why? Remember their context, put yourself in their sandals. What are they thinking? They have come to tell you, you picked up on that, David? Gotcha. All right. They, they have grown up with this concept that the Messiah is going to what? Lead a revolution to restore Israel back to its rightful place as a sovereign, uh, autonomous nation. Just like King David, just like King uh, Solomon. That's the Messiah, a physical king, which is why during the triumphal entry, they're laying down their palm branches and cloaks saying, King of what? Israel. They weren't laying it down saying, Ender of sin, the the Lamb of God. They weren't laying down saying that. They were like, This is our king. And a week later, when he didn't do that, like, off with his head. Where's the next one? Who's another? Who else could be the the Messiah? And so the disciples are growing concerned because they're not seeing the Messiah that they have preconceived ideas, their expectations. Their expectations are being unmet of what the Messiah is going to be and do. Because he's talking about death. No, 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 not not death, Jesus. Uh, uh, overthrow of the Romans, overthrow of Pilate, of Herod, because we are here to be, uh, remember, if you're reading the same timeline with in Mark and in Matthew's gospel, do you remember the, the question that James and John asked Jesus during the triumphal entry? Does anybody remember? Mark, Mark chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 20, I think it's Mark 11. He says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit at your what? Right and your left. When this thing all shakes down, it happens. Because look, they're lining up. They got the palm branches. They got their cloaks off. They're going to lay it down. When this happens, can we get front row seats? They're thinking this is it. The kingdom of God is coming back to earth. So let's don't think, let's don't, let's don't throw stones at these guys because they're just thinking what, you know, they were taught to think. They didn't understand is what we're getting at. Even John said, I think it was chapter 12, he said, we didn't understand what Jesus was really doing until the Holy Spirit came and reminded us of his words. So let's remember, they're getting worried, they're getting concerned because Jesus is not taking these steps to overthrow. He's taking steps and predicting his death. So they're growing concerned. And what does Jesus do when he sees his friends, his disciples grow concerned? He, he, he does what we would expect him to do. He comforts them. 
He says, guys, listen, don't let your hearts be troubled. You, you've believed in God. You've believed him. Believe also in me. Now think about this. In their context, they believe God so much that they think, incorrectly, but they think because of a faith in God that Jesus as the Messiah is going to restore their prominence in the world as a nation. By faith, because they're under rule of Rome right now. And he's saying, listen, you know how you're believing God? That, that's, don't stop believing God. But here, let's realize that this is going to happen completely different than what you think it's going to happen. Believe also immediately. Trust me, is what he's saying. Trust me that, that I know what I'm doing. Trust me that something even greater is coming down the pike for you. And he explains this. He doesn't just say, don't let your hearts be troubled. It's kind of like saying, you know, wall, don't be cream colored. It's like, how do you just not let your heart be troubled? He, he, he gives them a reason why. He says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If you have a King James version, you might see the word um, many mansions. And there's a lot of hymns about mansions. Uh, that's just not what the Greek actually says. So we'll just have to go with what the Greek actually says, which is many dwelling places. If it were not so, if, it, if this didn't happen, I, I would have told you. I'm, I'm telling you the truth. For I go to prepare a place for you. Now, we're going to talk about at length what this means. But put yourself in the shoes, the sandals, the, what would they be, Birkenstocks of the disciples. What? What? I'm, you're going somewhere? We just got here. Where are they? They're in Jerusalem. You're going somewhere? Do you see in their minds, this isn't adding up. You're going, so we just got here. They just laid the palm branches down. But I'm going to prepare a place for you. So are the disciples thinking about a spiritual, see we read this and we have 2000 years of church history to know more so about what he's saying. We're gonna get into it in detail in a minute. But do the disciples have 2,000 years of church history to know what he's talking about? Uh, no. So they're not thinking about, oh, Jesus is going to prepare a spiritual uh, uh, ability for us to enter into the kingdom of heaven, to spend forever in the kingdom of heaven with God, who will reside in our hearts. That's the clueless about this. They're thinking about a physical kingdom and Jesus as the Messiah has come to establish this earthly kingdom where Jesus is the king of Israel. And yet now he's talking about leaving, leaving to go where? Where's the way that you're going, Jesus? Wouldn't that be a good question to ask him? Which way are you going? Because we just got here. That's a great question to ask. Verse three, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way I'm going. And the disciples are like, <laughs> no, we don't. How can you say that, Walt, that they don't know where they're going? Well, fortunately, before he gets, gets uh, the first name doubting, Mr. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. That's how we know they don't know what's going on. They're clueless. We're, which way? How do we know the way? We followed you here to Jerusalem. You're the one that left uh, Galilee uh, to come down and raise Lazarus. 
And one of the disciples, I forget who it is now, uh, said, you sure you just escaped Judea and they were ready to stone you. And you sure you want to go down back down to Judea to raise Lazarus, to, to, to check on Lazarus? And Jesus says, yeah, the time has come. And they said, well, let's just go down there and die with them. Like, you're the one that brought us here. Now you're talking about leaving. We don't know the way. If you don't lead us, we don't know where you're going. Now, again, do they have, this is important, and I've said it a few times, do they have any, in their thinking, any context of a spiritual heaven, a spiritual kingdom, a spiritual, I'm submitting to you, I could be wrong, but I'm submitting absolutely not clueless and it's okay because it hadn't been revealed yet what did Paul say this had been hidden from generations past but now is revealed to the saints Um, Colossians 1 I think and so we don't know where you're going Jesus how do we know the way and then we have probably the most important powerful impactful verse, at least in John 14, but probably in all of John, maybe in in all of scripture, where Jesus, it's almost like he was waiting for the question. You know, I could see Jesus like saying certain things and not other things to get them to this point of asking like, what's the way? We need you to tell us the way. We don't know the way. And like he's teed it up for a Grand Slam, he says, I am the way. This word way, it's Greek is the same as road. I'm the road. I'm the path. It's not about us going out here and finding the road to go to some other city. I am the road. Now, do you think the disciples were like, oh, I get it now. That makes perfect sense. Not at all. Not at all. Remember what he just told Peter at the end of chapter 13, just a few verses, a few seconds before this happened. He said, you're going to deny me three times. They don't know what's going on. And again, it's okay. Let's don't like, you know, throw them under the bus. We wouldn't have known either because it just hadn't been revealed. But he says, I am the way. The way to where we're going, it's me. I am the way. I am the truth. This word truth in the Greek, it's, it's a... It literally means the reality. I am the reality. So when you're discovering, you're trying to figure out what is true. Like if you have kids, one kid says, you know, this is what happened. The other said, that's what happened. You know, first and foremost, that what they said isn't what happened. Either one of them is what happened. You're wanting to know, we would call it the truth. But what are you really wanting to know? The reality, what really happened. And that's what he's saying is calling himself the truth. I am reality. So whatever you think is reality, if it doesn't measure up to where I am and who I am, then it's not reality. And so they had developed a system and they were given a system and they tried their best at the system of a reality to them that your goods outweighing your bads, your goods resulting in blessings, your bads resulting in curses so that you could be blessed and hopefully not be cursed by God. That's what they thought reality was. And Jesus is saying, that's not reality. I'm reality. I'm truth. And then he says, last, I am the life. Now this is important 
We'll get to it in a second. We're only doing six verses today. We're already, oh, this is the last verse, verse six. I am the life. This is important because we have missed, I, I should say I, I have missed what salvation really is for most of my life. I really thought that salvation was uh, getting my sins forgiven. And we know that the forgiveness of sins is absolutely required, absolutely required for salvation. But as we'll see more in a second, and as we've talked about much over the last several weeks as we've gone through John, is that salvation, as Paul says in Romans 5, is not simply the removal of sin, the forgiveness of sins, but it's the impartation of what? Life. And so Jesus is already setting them up to understand. Do that. He says, we, we're not going to look at this verse today, but later in chapter 14, he says, all this stuff that I'm telling you, I'm sending someone to you who will explain it all to you. And it's not a pastor. It's not the apostle Paul even, though he helps. It was who? The Holy Spirit who would live in them to reveal to them, to remind them of what Jesus said, to put into better context of what this all is meaning. And so he says, I am the life, the life that Adam lost. I am that life that must be restored in order for man to be with God again. You think God is with you Israelites because you were born of an Israelite who was born of an Israelite who was born of an Israelite. As Paul clarifies that in Romans 2, true Israel are those who have been circumcised, not of the flesh, but of the heart. The old heart being cut out in a brand new heart, being birthed by life, by faith in Jesus. So what is Jesus saying? This is a very, oh, no one, let me finish it. No one comes to the Father, but through me, but by means of me, except through me. So what is Jesus saying? Well, it seems pretty. This is why this is such an impactful verse, because you don't really have to like struggle with an interpretation. I mean, he is saying that the only way for anyone to get to the father, for the father to get to them is through believing what Jesus in time and space for them is about to do for us what he has done. No one gets to the Father except through me. I am the conduit through which this happens. What was commandment, if you will, number one from chapter 12? Starts with a B. Believe. What was commandment number two from chapter 13? Starts with an L. Love. Let's keep that in mind. So Jesus is saying there is no other way. Now this is very um, hot, much hot top of a hot topic today, even 2000 years later, even perhaps more so than, than then because of our pluralistic country, a uh, uh, society where there can be, you know, in the Oprah Winfrey sort of theology of many ways, you got the hub and you've got the spokes and all the different spokes are different ways to get to the hub. And we just choose your path, your truth, you know, sort of stuff. And so this is a very, very important issue now as it was even then. How do we, humanity, get to the Father, get to heaven? How is this relationship restored between us and God? And Jesus says there's only one way. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now why is that true? Why is that true? But if so, why is that true? I have a few thoughts that we'll share and then I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, what is it 
So he's making an assumption that man and God are separate. He says, no one comes to the Father but through me. Well, if we have to go through Jesus to get to the Father, then without Jesus, what are we with the Father? We're not with the Father. We're separate from the Father. Do you see the presumption that he's making? Which is obviously a true presumption. So what is it that separates? What is it that is in between? What is it that keeps, apart from Jesus, man and God separate? Sin and death. See, for the longest time, I would just be like, sin. Well, sin. Now, does sin and death go hand in hand? They do. But we've got to understand the two things that stand between us and God. Sin and death. Sin entered the world, and, the, and because of that, death came in on its coattails. Sin and death. See, for the longest time, I would have said, of course Jesus didn't forgive all the world of all their sins. Of course not. Because then all the world would be saved. And we know that's not true. Because I thought that it was only what that stood between man and God? Sin. But that's not the case. It's sin and death stand between God. It's not just sin that separates man from God. If it was just sin, then think about it. If it was just sin, now I'm just, I, I don't believe this, but someone could make this argument. If it was just sin that stood between, and not sin and death, but just sin, then someone could make a viable argument, I don't believe it myself, that if we pile on a lot of nonsense, goods, that could outweigh the sins, then that could tip our little you know, teeter-totter towards God because our sins are less than our goods. Now, I don't believe that. But if that's all it was that stood between man and God was just sins, then we could pile up the goods to outweigh the sins and maybe we could slide our way towards God. But you see, sin alone isn't what separates man from God. It's sin and death. Sin and death separate man from God. This means that all the good works, all the good deeds that anyone could ever do can never make any headway in the separation between man and God because it isn't simply sins that need to be outweighed or need to be overcome. It's sin and death. When God told Adam in the garden, he said, the day in which you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that very day you shall die. Is that true? Did Adam die that day? Well, we can look at the historical record of his flesh and say, no, it was 930 years later that he physically died. Well, but God said very plainly in the Hebrew, in the day in which you eat, that very same day you shall die. So death did occur that day, but it wasn't his physical body. What death occurred? It was the removal of God's very life from Adam. Remember, when God created Adam, he formed him out of the dust of the ground, and he what into him? He breathed life into his very nostrils, the very life that I think Jesus is referring to. I am that life. I am the life. And that life was breathed into Adam, but the moment at which Adam sinned, what no longer was in Adam? The life of God, because the righteousness and holiness of God and the sinfulness of man cannot coexist. And so the absence of life of God from Adam resulted in his death. Let's call it spiritual death. Physically, he's still alive, but spiritually, he was dead. So both sin and death separated Adam from God. So Adam, let's just suppose that Adam never for the rest of his 930 years of existence 
let's just suppose that he did not ever sin again. And he did a lot of good stuff. Well, you'd think, come on, if it's just sin that separates us, we're pretty close. But it's not. It's sin and death that separated Adam. And we are born, as Genesis 5 says, we're born created in the image of Adam. Physically alive, but yet spiritually dead. So it's both sin and death. As Jesus is saying, you have to come through me to get to the Father. There's a separation and only through me can you get. What is the separation? Sin and death. So how can Jesus say that through him, because of him, by means of him, this separation ends? That it has to be because what Jesus is in their time and space about to do takes care of both sin and what? Death. So what did Jesus do with sin on the cross? We know the answer to that. He took it away. He took it away. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Whose sin did he take away? The sin of the world. John, the same guy in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he says, um, and if you do sin, just remember that we have an advocate with the Father who uh, is the propitiation for our sin, and not only our sin, but the sin of the whole world. Sin has been taken away. Uh, the psalmist prof- uh, uh, dreaming about this day, because the Psalms was written hundreds of years before this happened, says that when this happens, our sin will be taken as far as the east is from the west. The two will never see each other again. And so in his death, and Hebrews is obviously crystal clear on this, his death, he died to sin once and for all. By his one sacrifice, he has taken away sin. And many people, like myself in the past, would say, oh, so since all of sins are forgiven, then that means all are saved, right? And the answer, of course, is no. It wasn't just sin that separated, it was sin and who else? His friend named death. So just because sin has been removed, that's wonderful. That absolutely has to happen. There's still this other thing called death that separated man from God. So the cross eliminated the sin, but death still, even to this day, separates man from God. So how did Jesus fix that? How did Jesus remedy death separating us from him? He what? Three days later, rose from the dead. That's why he rose from the dead, because death is what separated us from God. And so he rose from the dead to conquer not just sin on the cross in his death, but in his resurrection, he conquered death. So sin is eliminated by his death, but death is conquered by his life. And he says, I am this life. This is why. Jesus can make this incredibly bold, and if he's not telling the truth, lunatic statement. No one comes to the Father but through me. Who else has taken away sin? Who else has conquered death, having taken away sin? So Jesus has removed sin for all time, for all people in his once and for all death on the cross. And then he rose three days. Why three days? 
Well, because that makes a cool song three days later. No, it's because in their culture, someone wasn't clinically, I don't know if they use that term clinically, um, uh, established as being dead unless they were dead for three days. That was their culture. That was their, they didn't have, I guess, the, what are those things called? Those stethoscopes to listen to the heart. They didn't have like little beep beep machine things, you know, to see if it worked, if they were still alive. They didn't have that. So what do they do? Well, the body's still laying there three days. Okay, well, and then they're dead. And so that's why he was in the tomb for three days. Because that was the, the determination in their culture for that day that he was, in fact, dead. So salvation is not simply the removal of sins. It's the impartation of a life. And so Jesus, in his death, took away sin once and for all, but then he rose victorious from the dead to give life. Whose life? His life. His life that will, Hebrews says, never end. He gives that life to all who what? Believe. Now, why will Jesus' life in a believer never end? Why will his life never depart? This is a big hot topic in Christianity today. Are you saved forever? Are you saved completely? Well, if you read the Bible, you are. Hebrews says it very plainly. He is able to save us completely because his life never what? Ends. So as long as his life in us never ends, we will never, okay, double negatives, we will never not be saved. We are always saved because his life, it's the, it's the, our salvation is tied to the, to the power of his life, not the power of our commitment or our devotion. So what happens when a believer sin- oh, Well, let me rewind. Why did the life of God depart Adam? Because Adam what? Sinned. Very plain, very simple. Why shall, well, now let me ask you this way. Therefore, should we not agree? If we all agree that the life of God left Adam because Adam sinned, should we not all agree that the life of God, this life of Christ in you, shall depart you when you sin? If it, I mean, are you all that much better than Adam? I mean, that's what happened to him. So that could be our conclusion. When we sin, the life of God departs from us. Is that the reality? Oh, we have someone who is the reality, the truth. Why will the life of God not depart from us even though we still sin? Because what has been removed? Sin. Does that mean we don't still sin? Of course it doesn't mean we don't still sin. Of course we still sin. Man, getting bad with our negatives. Of course we still sin. But the reason why the life of God will never leave us who believe him even though we still sin is because our sins have been forgiven, have been eliminated from the very record annals of heaven. Remember, the Holy Spirit, Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10, he says it twice in Hebrews, the Holy Spirit himself testifies in this new covenant, I, the Holy Spirit, God himself, will remember their sins no more. So how does the life of God not leave us even though we still sin? Because our sins have been 
expunged, the big theological term. They've been removed. They've been eliminated. They've been dealt with. They've been punished. If God punishes us by the removal of his life from us, even when we sin today, then what did Jesus do on the cross? Because it's both sin and death that had to be overcome. His, our sin was overcome by his death, and our death was overcome by his resurrection. Now, do you think, honestly, that the 11 disciples who are sitting around the dinner table are thinking this when Jesus says this? Probably not. Do you think the disciples are right there with Jesus, understanding everything that Jesus means by saying, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, you can't come to the Father? Jews thought that the Father was with them already. And we are not getting into this today, but in the verses to follow, Jesus says, listen, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God has been with you, but there's coming a day when the Holy Spirit shall be what? in you. Very different. There's no way the disciples knew this because the Holy Spirit wasn't in them. Again, just a few days ago, like two or three days ago, James and John were arguing and asking whether or not they could sit at the right hand when Jesus ushers in this kingdom. Let's go back, last couple thoughts, to verse 1 and 2. 2. He says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. What is this place that Jesus went to prepare? There's a couple of ideas out there. Some people say, well, it's heaven itself. That heaven, when Jesus came to earth, was kind of like it had a sign, you know, from the um, zoning district, you know, it says coming soon, you know, there's going to be a hearing, we're going to rezone this place, it's going to be a place of heaven, and, you know, more information to follow. Jesus comes down to earth, he goes back to heaven to prepare heaven, to develop heaven. I'm going to prepare heaven for you so that you can be where I am. Is this heaven in that sense that he's talking about? He's going back to the Father to build, to develop heaven. Many people think so. There's a famous line that says heaven is a prepared place. See, he's going to prepare heaven. It's a prepared place for a prepared people. Are you prepared? Now, certainly there's a preparation of our heart that must happen for us to enter heaven. Absolutely. We must be born what? Born again. Jesus said that to Nicodemus in chapter 3. Except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's certainly true that we must be prepared by believing Jesus, but is it heaven in this sense that he's going to construct that he's talking about? Those people who think that Jesus is talking about heaven in this sense, they say things like, look, how many days did it take Jesus to create the entire universe? Six days. And look at the splendor, the wonder, the majesty of the universe in only six days. Just imagine. Just imagine what heaven's like for 2,000 years. He's been developing heaven, building heaven. Is that what Jesus is talking about here? Is he going to return to heaven for thousands of years to build it, to construct it, and even worse, 
there's some people who teach that the, even the building materials themselves and the quality of the build that Jesus is doing is based upon your performance here on earth. And so whether you live in Beverly Heavens or one-story purgatory, it depends on what you do here on earth. How big is your mansion going to be? I just want the two-room shack. That's all I need. Is Jesus, is this what he means? I'm preparing heaven. I'm, I'm constructing streets of gold. Is that what he's talking about? Maybe. Hey, it may be. But I don't think so, as you probably could tell. He says he's going to prepare a place so that where he is, you can be. He says in his father's house are these many dwelling places, places for the father to dwell. And he goes on later in this chapter to say that the very abode of God, the very dwelling place of God is with us. Even specifically, we just said it in us. He says the Holy Spirit shall be in you. So for these disciples, remember, he's talking to 11 guys here. For these 11 disciples, when does the Holy Spirit, God himself, go from being with them to then being in them? When does that happen for them? After he rose from the dead, for sure. When they believed is Acts chapter what? Two, we call it Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit came down and Peter starts saying things that maybe he realized what he was saying, maybe he didn't realize what he was saying as far as like the content, but the Holy Spirit comes into them with this tongues of fire, the scripture says, and there was all these Jews who had come to Pentecost from all these different languages, all these different areas, and all of them were able to hear Peter speak in their, in their own native tongue language. And the Holy Spirit goes into them and they're born of his spirit. The church is birthed. So Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place so that where I am, there you may be. So the Holy Spirit, God himself can be in you. When does that happen? Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus's death. So I don't think Jesus is talking about for 2000 years, I'm building some place, Beverly Heavens for you to, you know, uh, like, you know, the heavenly version of like Old Trail or something like just so that you can have all your shopping and your dining and your golf in one location. Like, I don't think that's what he's talking about. When he talks about these dwelling places and just 50 days later, there is someone now dwelling in them. God himself. See, I think he's not talking about some building development. I think he's talking about them. He's prepared a place for God to now live in them. In my father's house are many dwelling places, many places for him to dwell in your heart and in your heart and in your heart. You see, God did live with them. Even he lived with man in the garden. But when man sinned, God left. Then because of God's great love for us, God became a man. And this God man then died to cleanse, forgive, eliminate, remove man's sin from us so that all who believe to those who believe gave the rights to become sons of God in the restoration of this union where now God once again resides and lives in 
mankind. What does Paul tell the Colossians your true hope of glory is? It's not the building materials you're sending up to heaven for what your mansion will be one day. Your glory, the the hope of your glory is the fact that Christ himself now dwells where? In you. That's your hope of glory. And so the major difference this time is that God will never leave. He left Adam because Adam sinned and sin hadn't been eliminated. Sin hadn't been atoned for, removed. But now, even though we sin and we do, he never leaves because all sin for all time has been removed. God left Adam because of Adam's sin, but your sin has been removed. So therefore, there is nothing that will ever separate you from God himself. You see, that's what I think, and I could be wrong, but I think that's what these dwelling places that, God, that Jesus himself prepared. He prepared a place for man and God to become one, as he's going to pray for in John chapter 17. And he mentions it later here in John 14. But he prays, he prepares a place for the God of the universe and man to be joined together in a new union. And where is that place for these disciples? Where did that, when did that happen? It happened just 50 days after he died in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came and entered into them, never to leave again. So I believe that the many dwelling places that Jesus prepared in his death and resurrection, it wasn't the latest development of heaven with shops and golf and movie theaters and dining. But I believe it's your very own heart, your very own life, your very own being. He has cleansed you so that he can live in you if you believe. Because think about it, what further cleansing happened the moment you believed? The only way for you to be forgiven of your sins, Hebrews says, is for blood to be shed. Did Jesus bleed again when you trusted him? No. So what happened? When he bled once and for all, sin was eliminated. Remember the vision that Peter was given of Cornelius? God told Peter, he says, what I have cleansed, do not ever call uncleansed. Talking about a Gentile of all people. We'll get into that another time. Gentile is cleansed. What I have cleansed Do not consider unholy, uncleansed. So what I'm submitting to you is that in his death, he prepared a place in every single human to ever come for his Holy Spirit to come if they but what? Believe. There must be faith in order for rebirth, new birth to occur. And so he's cleansed you. He's cleansed all of humanity for once and for all, for all time. Why? So that where I am, it's the next verse, uh, so that where I am, there you may be also, Christ in you. So for these disciples, it wasn't a future, thousands of years later, there's going to be this awesome development in heaven that we just drop our jaws at. He's talking about something much more imminent, much more nearer. Just 50 days later, the Holy Spirit came in them. The life of Christ, the life, verse 6, the life.
became in them and they were saved. Not because their sins were forgiven. Their sins were forgiven on the cross. But the impartation of life occurred 50 days later in Pentecost when the church was born. So what's our journey marker? How do we kind of wrap this up? Put it all into sort of a a thought we can think of. There's a lot of ways we can do this. I'm just going to say this one. Man, did I put it in here? Yes, good. so, So what were the two commandments? Chapter 12. Believe, chapter 13, love. All right. As I have loved you. This is the same conversation. It's the same dinner. Let's don't divide it up into like a bunch of different sermonettes. This is the same dinner. Thinking about love your neighbor as I have loved you. The most unloving thing we could possibly do is to lead someone to believe that Jesus isn't the only way. Just think about that for a second. The most unloving thing we could do is to lead somebody to think that Jesus isn't the only way. You say, Walt, that sounds so narrow. I don't know. Yeah, I don't, it is. It is narrow. It's one way. But, you know, the way God created the world is pretty narrow. I mean, if us think of mathematics. Two plus two is always going to be what? Four. Always. Every time. It's narrow. The sun always rises on the east and sets in the west. But I don't want it to. It's narrow. It's not very tolerant. But the most unloving thing we could possibly do is to give room, to give credence that there might be some other way. And if we do that, then the risk we run, or the risk we, that, that comes with that is that someone is convinced that Jesus isn't the way, the only way, the, the truth in the life, and that there's some other possible way. But we know better, not because we have, you know, we're, we're more special, because, you know, we have the corner market on, on, on all things, but we know what actually separates man and God, and it's both sin and death. And sin was eliminated because of the work of Christ on the cross, and it's only by putting our faith in his death and resurrection and what he did that we now come through him with a whole new life, his life, now in us to restore what was lost in the garden. And in our pluralistic culture and the pressure, it's great to concede to someone that faith in Jesus isn't the only way to heaven. But that would be the most unloving thing to do when our commandment is to love as he has loved us. And so my, I, I, I face the pressure constantly, again, especially in our community here, of other roads leading to heaven, of a pluralistic sort of view. But if we truly understand what separates man from God and we truly understand what Jesus did, then the most unloving thing that we could possibly do is to give someone a thought that Jesus isn't the only way. Because who else has removed our sins and who else has conquered death? And those are the two things that stand between us and him between man and him. So that's the first six verses of chapter 14. We're going to obviously continue in 14 um, next week where he explains it a, a little further of what this means because they're, they, they're not really tracking with him. 
And so he explains it better. He explains it further. He explains to them that the Holy Spirit, again, is going to be in them, not just with them. And, you know, you just sort of imagine, like a lot of them start asking questions. Judas, not the Iscariot, asks some questions. Philip asks some questions. Thomas has already asked a great question. And so you start to see that the, Jesus's words, what he's telling them, isn't matching up with what they think is about to happen. And so their life is... They, for three years, they thought this is the direction. This is what's going to happen. The Messiah is going to overthrow. And it's all starting to not match up all of a sudden, which is why probably only John, who knew his love, was at the cross. The rest of them had sort of said, well, maybe we were wrong. But it was only John, not even Peter, was at the cross. Before the sun comes up the next morning, Peter's already denied him three times. Why? Why would he do that? Because I think they just had a misconceived idea of what this is all about. And so Jesus is doubling down on his explanation of the spiritual kingdom, the spiritual reality of Christ in you, the king of Israel in you, not just on some sort of throne in Jerusalem, but actually in you. It's mind-blowing to them. They couldn't process it. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit came into them when Peter then says, this is what the prophet said would happen. And it all starts making sense. And it takes years, even for Peter, years for them to understand that it's not adherence to Moses, but it's living by the life of Christ alone for that to fully mature in them. So before we break up, before we take off this morning, uh, I know we only looked at a few verses, but man, I think these are some pretty powerful, important verses. Any thoughts, any questions, any um, subtractions, additions, multiplications that you'd like to offer? for our, our time. Any questions? You, you talked about uh, the verse in, in uh, I guess like two back or something like that where it says in my father's house are many mm-hmm. mansions. And I was thinking about what you were saying. Um, right. I've always read that to mean that he wasn't back in the mansion thing. Mm-hmm. Even, and I feel like right now I have new glasses. <laughs> I'm looking at things differently. And before I had glasses, I looked at things and it was fuzzy and almost couldn't tell what it was. Now I have the glasses. I have to go back and look at everything. Right. But this this is a present tense. Mm-hmm. If the signs out there saying zoning coming soon, right. then why is it already built out? There are yeah. already yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So when you look at it from that new perspective, you realize that it doesn't seem to indicate that you would indicate it. It doesn't seem to indicate this is something coming soon. Right. It's something here already, and so it must mean he's talking about something else. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, and he keeps on saying in a little while, in a little while, in a little while. He says that several times in chapter 14. We'll get to it in the next couple of weeks. In a little while. I mean, we're not talking thousands of years. We're talking like, like, like tomorrow I'm going to die and I'm going to prepare a place for you and me to be one. And where's that place going to be? It's in you. Now, now that's my take. I could be dead wrong on it, but I just don't think that he's, again, you've heard my spiel. I just don't think he's talking about a, 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 this concept that I know I've, like you're saying, like developed of this man, he's up there swinging away. He's the carpenter, you know, man, look what he's doing, you know, um, he's framing up my mansion, you know, sort of a deal. I just think it's better than that. But see, we're so like, 
That's almost Islam, honestly. It's almost Islam for those who are familiar with uh, Islamic theology that uh, our, our afterlife is dependent upon the condition of our present life, um, almost like a karma sort of concept. And that's not the new covenant. If we've learned anything, that is not the new covenant. Um, also, going back to that, I am the way part of the um, Yeah. Um, it's funny, if you look at the progression, I love this part of the gospel. Throughout his ministry, he built up to this point. This is yeah. the crescendo, the exactly. ending, the, right. it's, it's almost poetic the way this works out. He did. He actually chided people for saying something about him and who he was. That's true. That I didn't think about that. Now he's like, it's all out yeah, there. I'm right. to tell you guys this. Yeah. This is the truth. And it's so funny how unprepared they were. Yeah. Having spent three years working right. with this guy every day. And I, and I think it just comes down to their definition of what the Messiah was yeah. to be and to do. They just didn't. It was hidden. And it was hidden for a reason because Paul says in the Corinthian letter that had they known, had the rulers of this world, I think including Satan, had they known that Jesus was the Son of God and, and this was the, what he was going to do, then they wouldn't have crucified him. They wouldn't have crucified the Son of Glory had they known. And so it had to be hidden. Had to be, he had to speak in parables that were hidden, uh, like a parabolic lens. It kind of goes around, you know, a, the a parabolic trajectory. He had to give parables that sort of skirted around the main meat because he, it had to be hidden. It had to be disguised in certain ways. You know, there was a farmer who went into, you know, and, and, but now we can understand what he's saying because it's all happened. It's all, but before it, it hadn't happened. That's why the prophets, you know, like with Daniel, like, you know, in different, prophecies of this of this coming Messiah it was so vague and so they they couldn't just look at the scriptures and just say oh this is absolutely we understand it a new kingdom heaven you're you know blah 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 because um, had the rulers of this world known they wouldn't have even done it they wouldn't even have crucified them and that had to happen I just want to throw one more thing out there all of my life I've always looked at Judas as the ultimate villain mm-hmm. and I heard this theory once that and it makes good sense because these guys were all pretty clueless that it wasn't that he was trying to betray per se but he was just frustrated with this political thing hasn't happened yet I want him to just step forward and so yeah I, I shared some of that thought last week actually yeah I don't think you guys were here but uh yeah Yep, it, it, you know, it, he still is the one who betrayed Jesus. Let's don't, you know, but, but I think he was trying to call Jesus' cards. It's like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get these guys up here. They're going to arrest them. They're going to, you know, and, and, and then in the face of the arrest, he's going to reveal himself. And that didn't happen. And what did he do? He killed himself because his plan failed. It, you know, that's my, but, but again, I could be wrong. Real quick, yeah. Um, I commented earlier that that's intolerant. Mm-hmm. Um, today's world, it's it's like evil to be intolerant. You're, we're supposed to tolerate anything, you know. But God is intolerant of sin. He's he's you know, he's a holy God. Yeah. And so he won't tolerate sin. Yeah. And you know, so Adam. Did what he said not to, so he withdrew life from him. Right. And to me, like this, where he says, also he's saying it again, I am, mm-hmm. which is what he said right. all along about that. Right. 
Right. Yeah. Um, but each each of those phrases, he's saying, "There's only one. I am the way." Right. Yeah. There's only one. Right. It's the right. Not, not several. I'm one right. of the ways. It's right. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah. There's no other. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so he has a right to be intolerant. He has a right to have his way. Yeah. 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 If God is not intolerant of sin, giving my negatives here, right? Um, then, then explain the cross. I mean, why would the God have clothed Himself as a man and gone through the cross if He could tolerate sin? He couldn't, and we couldn't tolerate the judgment of sin and survive. And so He stepped in and took the became the intolerant sin and took to us the intolerable uh, judgment that we couldn't tolerate and took the judgment away. And so now the sin is removed and what remains? Faith. Believe. Are you going to believe us or not? Enter in if you believe. If you don't believe, then as Jesus says, then you remain dead in your sins. You remain dead because of, because of where you were before I even showed up. Yeah, Derek? I think it's just crazy how ridiculously easy it is for us to delude ourselves into thinking um, whatever we want to think about like a particular subject. So like for the disciples, like they had in their mindset this image of what Christ was mm-hmm. and everything that Christ did, they were like, okay, well, how does that fit into my image of Christ? Okay, well, maybe he's thinking like this way or something like that. They're not really wanting to think um, about uh, what Christ is actually telling them. They're mm-hmm. wanting to kind of put Christ into this like square hole right. they, that he doesn't really yeah. fit in. Um, and I mean, we do that today. Exactly, well, yeah. Right. Uh, putting uh, Christianity and Christ into this hole of um, like actions and works and, and yeah. karma-based type of thinking right. and all of that yeah. stuff um, when that's not the truth at all. Yeah. We, sure. we, go, we do it even more so today. I feel like society does it even more so today because there's um, we have we have the entire book and the entire story and everything is mm-hmm. there for us to uh, to digest and yet still find excuses to say no that doesn't mean what it says <laughs> that's not it right like, yeah. That, yeah that doesn't fit with how I believe yeah this should be so that's not that's so not it's right. right yeah yeah that's, yeah and you know they. Yeah. They had their three years walking with and whatnot, and while that would be a blessing, we we actually, I think you brought this up before, while we actually have that and everything else yeah. in the Bible. Yeah, he's in us. Yeah, he wasn't, He was, up to this point, he wasn't in them, but he's now in us. Now, he does go in them, in the, again, the Pentecost, right, but not yet. And, and so there's, so I used to, again, like, think like, God, oh, these guys are idiots. How could they? But I, you know, let's, let's, let's uh, be fair, right? They, they, they were products of their pharisaical Judaism. Um, see, the law was given to show man that, it, the Jews in particular, that they cannot achieve God. That was what was given. But after the um, exiles, the Pharisees, the pharisaical order rises up, say, hey, I think we figured out a way to do this law. 
So create all these traditions in order to like, see, we can actually do this. So it had become uh, a thought of, we can really pull this thing off as opposed to after the exile, God, we're hopeless. We need somebody to help us. And so it had the almost the opposite effect. And so that's why Jesus shows up on the scene and says, um, only those who have a pure heart will see God. And you see the Pharisees, the, you know, like, yeah, that's right, pure heart, you know. And then he says, so you've heard it say that if you commit adultery, you are, you've sinned. You're like, yeah, we've not committed adultery. We're pure. And he said, but I tell you, if you've even committed adultery in your heart, you're guilty. So, so how pure is that heart now? You see that? Like, and so he's bearing these Pharisees, the Pharisaical system, underneath the true weight of the law to where they, some Pharisees, even if you read the book of Acts, chapter 10, 9 and 10, there were actually Pharisees in the new community. Now, they didn't have their theology right. They were saying, how dare these Gentiles not obey the Mosaic law? So they had their theology wrong, but they were believing that Jesus was the Messiah. So there was some progress, but it takes a while. It took, it took 30 some years for me before I realized what the gospel and I'm still realizing it, but 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 that is all about his life and not my life, or my efforts. Any other thoughts? Good stuff, man. Cool. Well, I really look forward to seeing how the rest of chapter 14 develops because they have some questions, major questions. Like <laughs> I love the next verse. He says, uh, "Whoever is Philip, maybe." He says, you know, Jesus, if you just showed us the Father, we'd be all right. It, it would calm our fears. You said, don't let your heart be troubled. Just show us the Father, and then we'll know that this is going to be okay, that the kingdom's going to come, that we're going to sit at your right and your left. You know, you know. and Jesus is like, face palm. Like, I've, I've walked with you for how many years? How many years? And uh, so it's, it's comical, but yet... It, um, uh, inspiring to know that man, if they didn't get it right all the time we're not going to get it right all the time but fortunately we have the, as you're saying mo- the more of the story the rest of the story that we get to live in light of well let's stand up and close with a word of prayer father we thank you for this morning we thank you that you are alive and it is your life that is our life i love how paul says to the letter uh, to, to the uh, colossians he says when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, we shall appear with him in glory. You are not a priority in our life. You are not uh, the number one priority of our life, competing against our family and our work and our hobbies. We're priorities two, three, and four. You're not a priority competing. You are our life. And so whether we are at work, whether we are with our family, whether we are at hobbies, whether we're at church, whether we are driving down the road, you are our life. May that become real to us, not just words off a page from Paul to some Corinthian believers, Colossian believers, but may it be real. May it become the very fabric of our being that we see the truth. Let me see what is that you are our life and our life is hidden with you, in you. And wherever you go, we go. Wherever we go, you go because you prepared a place in us. You cleansed us 
of all sin, for all time, for all people. And there are people galore in this world around us who have a place prepared in them. Their sin have been removed, but they remain unbelieving and they must believe to be born again. They must believe as we have. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to share this truth, to live this truth with our friends, our neighbors, our family, our our kids. This amazing story, this amazing reality of your love towards us. So, Father, we thank you and we pray that you would continue to reveal to us the truth because we don't have time for anything else. And if anything I share this morning is not true, missing, incomplete, Father, may I trust your spirit in each one of us to guide us in the truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.